Welcome to the podcast that will bring the pages of Elephants in Tea magazine to life. Never heard of us? We're the only magazine written for and by the adolescent and young adult cancer community. We like to call everyone in our community our herd. So, welcome to the herd. Although this club is not one that you're glad you joined, knowing you're not alone in what you're going through and hearing from people who get it can really help. With this podcast, you can bring your herd with you on the go. Welcome to AYA Cancer Unfiltered, spilling the tea with our herd. Hi, Aubrey. Thank you so much for being here today. Hi, thanks for having me. I am super excited to chat with you. I want to thank you, first of all, for writing for us and having your article published in the upcoming March magazine. Super exciting. Um, And for being one of the first few people that I am interviewing for this new podcast. So thank you so much. No, thank you. Thanks for accepting my piece and for allowing me to be a part of this this whole experience. So I'm super excited for it. Of course. So I would love to kind of get right to it. And I want to start um, just by asking you to share a little bit about your personal cancer diagnosis. What what type of cancer, when you were diagnosed, um, just some details so that our listeners can kind of get to know you on that level. Sure. Um, so I was 25 when I was diagnosed with stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um and I, being at that point in my life, uh, that was nowhere on my radar, didn't run in the family. I was mortal. Nothing could stop me. You know, career was everything. And I just, I kind of just, I think, was burning my candle at several ends. And um, there were clear signs that I was not healthy, but I, you know, being that age, just kind of wrote excuses for it. It was like, oh, I must have just twisted something when I was running or, you know, I'm stressed. So that's why I'm having these headaches and, you know, this is causing this. And so it was pretty far along um, by the time I was diagnosed. And, and but like once I was diagnosed, you know, we all kind of looked back, you know, family and, you know, my boyfriend and everyone and were just like that we probably should have realized something was going on. Um, but at that age, like I I, I didn't have a doctor that I was seeing regularly because didn't think I needed to. And so, yeah, so it was quite the curveball um, that was thrown my way. And then treatment lasted a, a full year um, for me because I was supposed to be on kind of what's standard um, for that. I, you know, I don't know if it's still the standard, but it was ABVD, um, which um, is not an uncommon cocktail for several things but so I started with that and then about and that's supposed to be I think it's like 12 infusions of that and it was like every 15 days um I was either hugging the toilet or starting to feel normal to where I would get another infusion and then hug the toilet again and then um after about five or six infusions uh when we did kind of the the next PET scan, we realized that it had, my cancer had actually grown. Um, and so then they, I pivoted and was put on a regimen that resulted in a stem cell transplant, which I had February of 2019. Um, so I will say I was 
very fortunate when I was diagnosed, at least the timeline I was diagnosed in, because a year later would have been, I, I can't imagine anyone going through that, especially during the, the peak of COVID and, um, and even still now. Um, I, so the, the small silver linings I will take, not that I'm one to always try to find silver linings and things. I was like, okay, well, at least I, I had it when the world at least felt somewhat calm, um, outside of that. So, um, yeah. Totally. And I think what you kind of described as, you know, you were at an age where why would it be on your radar? I liked how you put that because I think that's how a lot of AYAs feel. Um, why should cancer be in our minds, especially, you know, do you, do you have family history? I don't. Uh, so I have family history of breast cancer. Um, okay. So there was always a part of in the back of my mind where I was like, yeah, maybe when I'm older, that might be something popping up, but like never thought that. I would be diagnosed with lymphoma, you know, at, at 25. So, um, no, I, I was the trailblazer in my family in that regard. Um, (laughs) as much as I, you know, love that for other things, uh, this was definitely not something that I wanted to claim that for, but yeah. So not, not anywhere in my family history at all. Totally. Yeah, no. And the timeline, like you said, having your transplant be, you know, a year before, COVID really made its appearance um, in the United States. I feel like that, like you said, is a silver lining if you're looking for it. Um, yeah. Because I I echo what you said. I can't imagine kind of going through something that intense that is so hard on your immune system. I mean, treatment, cancer treatment in general is is difficult, but um, a transplant is like a whole different ballgame. So, yeah. Um, yeah. But how did your... Um, how did you handle like physically the transplant? Was that a super difficult process? Can you reflect on that just for a minute? Yeah. So that, that was probably like throughout all of treatment, you know, you have highs and lows mentally and and physically. That was the lowest point I ever got physically and mentally like Mm -hmm. was, you know, I was in the hospital for 17 days, I want to say. Um, and so it, the first five were just getting the infusion. So the first five for the first, you know, the five drugs leading up until that day six, um, or day zero as they call it, which is the kind of the main, there's when you get your stem cells back. So I, um, the first, first five days were pretty normal. Just me hanging out in the hospital getting infusions and just kind of going through the motions of things. And then it went downhill very quickly for me, just because I, some people, because of the one drug tend to get mouth ulcers where they can't really eat anything because it hurts. But mine, I just got ulcers pretty much from my um, esophagus down. And so I was, I, I was in pretty much for about three quarters of the time I was in the hospital. I wasn't able to have anything but water um so just because and then like clearly they were giving me infusions of other stuff through my IV but yeah so you know I I couldn't go to the bathroom without someone helping me out of bed and taking me and I I mean I was it was I'm a typically active person and it they had to force me out of a chair out of my bed to you know just move for the day and like even just getting up from the bed to get to a chair I was I was resistant to. Um, so it was, it was very difficult for me. Um, and that's also 
partly why, you know, going through, I mean, for any cancer patient, I would imagine. And again, a lot of what I'm saying, grain of salt, this is my experience. So I know everyone has their own perceptions and, and, and experiences through going through cancer treatment. But for me, um, when it became time for kind of monitoring PET scans and stuff, that was a huge anxiety. No one wants their cancer to come back by any means. Um, but for me, the forefront of my mind was if it did, it meant most likely another transplant. And I was, that was really why I was terrified. And I was like, I don't, I can't go back there. Like, I, I don't know, knowing how low I got mentally in that, I, I didn't know how I was going to make it through. Cause fortunately the first time I had no idea what to think. So I kind of went in and was like, we're going to figure this out and fight through it. And, you know, I have not personally spoken with a lot of people who went through a stem cell transplant, but from things I've read and, and, and podcasts and things. Um, I know people have, everyone is different, you know, as far as like what symptoms you have and how does it hit you? And, you know, some people are in there for far longer than I was in there. Some people are in there a little bit shorter than I was. Some people go through that process at home without many issues. Um, whereas my doctor said, if I had chosen that route, cause it was an option at the beginning, I, they, they're like, we would have had to admit you anyway, just cause you you didn't handle it well. So yeah. (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. I mean, I can totally understand how after you knew what you went through, you had been through it. So imagining having to do that again, just so, so difficult. Um, you mentioned that your transplant was in February and I know for transplants that that birthday is a kind of big thing to celebrate. Did it, did it happen yet? Uh, it was yesterday, actually. Yesterday. <laughs> well, happy birthday. Thank you. Yep. No, I honestly, because I, at first I thought, I was like, oh, wait, is it, are we going to be recording on my birthday? I was like, oh, no, it's the day right after. I'm like, that's perfect. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. So would you mind just talking about that just for a second? Because if we have listeners who are not familiar with um, transplants, just kind of a little bit more behind the scenes of what that means. Sure. Um. So, again. I've learned way more about this than I ever thought I would know in my life. But um, so for stem cell transplant, um, typically you have chemo leading up to that, leading up to um, the day that you get. For me, it was my own stem cells. Um, So mine um, was an autologous stem cell transplant, meaning I could they could harvest my own, um, which lowers the risk of of rejection um, and things like that. And then for others, typically they'll look for your family members first. Allogeneic um, is the other type. And they'll look clearly for family members and people most like you from a DNA standpoint to make sure that they're trying to minimize as much as possible their rejection. And if they can't, then see what other matches there are. So for anyone who um, has done, you know, the stem cell donor kind of bank and putting your like swabbing and stuff and putting your name in the database, like huge shout out, much appreciated for anyone going through that. Um, so it's super important, but the, um, so for your birthday, your birthday is essentially when the day you get your stem cells back, um, is when they put the, the stem cells that they harvested through you, which is a whole process leading up to it. And then, um, they, they have since frozen them and then they put them back through your IV. And, um, at that point, because the chemo is, is so potent, it's essentially kind of shutting everything down in a way, like killing, 
it's really much, you know, killing the cancer and then beyond. And so it tanks your, your blood counts to the point where they won't be able to regenerate on their own unless there's stem cells there to kind of give them that boost to then, you know, graft and regenerate from there. So um, that's why it's kind of your second birthday is because that's in a way when you were reborn, you know, and, and so to speak. So, yeah, so I got mine uh, February 6th of 2019. So, well, happy fourth birthday. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing more about that for people that maybe didn't know that that was a thing. Um, I want to kind of transition a little bit because the theme for our March magazine was all about the unseen challenges of survivorship. What is something that you wish people prepared you for about life after, you know, active treatment ends? Sure. Um, That's an interesting and slightly difficult question for me too, because I part of it. It's like, I don't know how much I would have listened, you know, and, until you're kind of experiencing it. But I guess a, a big thing would just be that um, maybe a more of an awareness of kind of the emotional turmoil that may stem from this kind of next phase. Um, I've said to, you know, family and friends that honestly, for me, mentally, this phase, again, a very fortunate and kind of privileged space to be in to be able to be a survivor absolutely but for me mentally this was the harder part and there was a lot more that flared up for me in this phase of of you know post-treatment that I had no idea I mean there were some things that were kind of offhanded comments made to me or said or things I kind of read though I tried not to go on the internet too much but um just about you know there's that's, you know, kind of a, an adjustment phase and things like that. But it, it really, this space has definitely kind of rocked me as far as um, coming to terms with, you know, who am I now? What, you know, I, it's such a intense monitoring that goes on when you're going through treatment that then all of a sudden, even though it's kind of weaned off somewhat where you just, you know, you know, every three months and then six months or so on and so forth, but still you go from I was in every single day. I knew everyone. Everyone knew me, you know, even with a mask on, they knew who I was to then, you know, walking into the cancer center and no one really recognizes you. You don't have a bald head anymore. You know, it's, you start feeling kind of not, it's not an outcast, but for lack of a better word, someone clearly who doesn't belong there anymore. So, um, even though you do, but still, um, so just, I guess, that sense of, you know, there will be ups and downs and this next phase is, is n- no less a roller coaster than what you just were on. But, um, you know, just it's, it's natural and, and the frustration and everything that kind of is a part of this survivorship phase is, is okay. And, and you don't have to say I shouldn't, or I should be feeling one way or the other. Like everyone's different and everyone has their own sense of, 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 you know, comfort or, or trying to navigate this and, and that's okay. But it, it won't be an easy phase. Just getting the all clear, huge weight is lifted. But for me, then another weight was kind of put on me in a very different sense. Totally. Oh my gosh. That was so well said. And something I relate to 
so much. And I think you said it perfectly when, when you're diagnosed, I feel like everything around you fades away and you're in such this like focus mode of like, okay, what's the next step? And you take it a day at a time, a treatment at a time, a step at a time, but then what (laughs) when your treatment ends? And I agree with you. I feel like other than maybe small comments that were said to me from people here and there, no one talked about after. No one talked about it. And I think that that what you just said is just very relatable, um, regardless of what type of cancer, you know, you've been through. It's that feeling of, and you put it so beautifully when you said it's a privileged space to be in. We are lucky to have that label of a survivor, but you know, it comes with its own weight. And, um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I want to talk specifically about your article, um, just so beautifully written. I'm wondering if you could just give us a little bit of insight on why you titled it what you did. Sure. Um, so the, not like the others kind of titled itself in a way once I was kind of really getting into it. So I started this piece actually when I was sitting in the waiting room of my oncologist, um, my, the hematology department, um, and just kind of looking around and the, you know, the, you know, scan stress and all that sort of stuff kind of weighing within me. And there's the writing kind of just became my outlet. So as I was writing though, the kind of repetition of the various parts of myself that set me apart, even within the, you know, cancer community that I was seeing, because again, I never, um, and a part of it is I also didn't attend kind of anything for uh, the, the AYA community that the cancer center did put on, but I was also like hugging the toilet most of the time. But um, most of the time in the departments I was in, I, I was the youngest by probably 30 years usually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so that'll, you know, kind of starting with that and then now being in the space of, you know, survivor and remission, you know, kind of, that sense of not being like the others just kind of so succinctly um, encapsulated what the transition from, you know, my life before having a diagnosis to then a patient and then the transition from patient to, to survivor, um, like really what that entailed and the kind of, kind of joint, you know, connecting piece throughout all of those transitions or, you know, these certain aspects of myself that, that thrust me into, you know, the club, so to speak, and being a patient. And then those aspects also being what is then pushing me out of that club in a way too. So you just kind of the, the patterns of that. And also, you know, within, you know, the cancer community itself, not being like the others, you know, in this also sense of like normalcy and whatever the heck that means, but, you know, the cancer community itself not being like the others. And then once you've moved beyond that, that what does that entail and how does that look without you, that you're no longer a part of that community, though you still are, but it's mm-hmm. just like a, the just different layers of kind of all that and how complicated, it, at least for me, it became within myself of like, how do I identify? And that I think is also why it's such a mental you know, struggle, so to speak, after the fact, and in this kind of remission phase is, you know, 
once you become a patient, like that became my identity. And at that point, kind of like I wrote, like your full, your sole focus is surviving, right. Mm-hmm. And to get healthy and to beat this thing. And then, then you become a survivor. And for, you know, a year, my identity was patient though. So what does that make me now is it's such, you know, one thing about kind of being in treatment is it's such a quick switch that's flipped as far as like who you are from an identity standpoint, where it's like going through puberty and stuff like that. It's kind of a gradual phase and you kind of feel things out and then you're kind of in your twenties and it's, it's like, you kind of have time to adjust and feel, whereas this is like, oh no, you are in this bucket now. Okay. No, you're in this bucket now. And so that struggle of, well, who am I now then? Because I don't have the doctors calling me constantly. I'm calling them about stuff. Right. I right. don't. Yeah. So it's like that whole, that whole struggle um, is, is kind of what really drove me for, for not like the others, because it was the sense of like, I, I don't know where I fit. And, and, you know, and it's been that way the whole way. It's just kind of shifts. What does that, what does that phrase mean? And how does that phrase change meaning once in the different contexts of kind of the process? Oh, totally. Oh my gosh. So many layers, so many transitions. And like you said, after you've been through what you just went through, you question your identity a bit. I mean, I know I did. Um, and it sounds like you did too. Like what, I love how you said normalcy, like what even is that? Because I think that a lot of the things that I used to correlate with myself or associate myself with didn't fit anymore. It didn't feel right after everything I went through. So it sounds like you can relate to that. And um, I'm wondering if people listening can also relate to that. But it just, I just think the experience of cancer itself at a young age just kind of turns everything upside down. (laughs) Really. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Your, oh gosh, your writing just painted such a descriptive you know, imagery picture of your experience when you were sitting in the cancer center. Um, And I'm wondering, you know, if you can speak a little bit, there was a line that really like stuck out to me that said more unseen scars lying quietly below the surface. Um, And I just thought that was such a perfect way to explain kind of what you just touched upon that delicate balance of from patient to survivor um, I'm wondering if you can just touch on that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So for that, I mean, again, these are all kind of my experiences. So everyone has their own, but I, you know, going through cancer treatment, all the various procedures and stuff along the way, you know, left me marked up. I mean, looking at me, you can see the various scars on my chest for the multiple ports I had and where they took lymph nodes out from my neck and things like that. So you know, there's those clearly visible marks, you know, and, and things that you can see on me, but then there's the ones below the surface that you, you can't see looking at me and that aren't clear to the eye. And it's, you know, in a way the, the, you know, the word scars can kind of be replaced for me at least for, you know, weight and, and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, the weight of, not knowing if I'm going to actually be infertile, you know, being told you are a hundred percent going to be infertile after this and not totally knowing until, you know, if, and when I decide to have a family kind of thing. And 
you know, then the weight of not knowing if my cancer is going to come back and, you know, the weight of not knowing who I am anymore kind of thing. So there's these things that you don't, you don't see and you just kind of carry them with you. And, you know, if you're at the fortunate point where, as I've kind of been able to get to where those scars are a little quieter and they're not necessarily, you know, at the forefront of my mind, you know, that's great. But then inevitably there's something that then sends them screaming at me, you know, to remember, you know, what we've been through and the fact that I am kind of forever changed. So, um, yeah, it was really just kind of this image to me of like walking and, and sitting with this, this a lot that's going on below the surface, like an iceberg, you know, you see the tip and there's like a whole lot more underneath that. Like you, you can't even begin to kind of process like what, my mind is thinking about or why it's thinking about or you know sitting at something and someone like a friend makes a random comment about something and you're it just like triggers me into thinking about something completely separate but tied to you know chemo or you know someone especially especially with covid with hand sanitizer and stuff where someone especially the stuff that smells so strongly of 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 alcohol someone at you know my friend was like putting hand sanitizer on and that smell just like hit me in the face and it just like threw me back to having them. Oh my gosh. Totally. (laughs) So many triggers for sure. I can totally relate to that. And I think that that's so well put, you know, when you, when you again, transition from patient to survivor, you often don't have those visible, you know, like, Oh yes, I'm sick. Look at me, you know, visual, um, cues for people, but you're struggling just as much, if not more, like you've said, which I totally agree with. And I think that sometimes that's hard. The emotional scars that are not visible to people, um, are very real and they're very much there. So absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. Um, you touched upon in your piece, this idea of hoping to be unremarkable. And I, love how you put that because typically, you know, the word unremarkable is maybe not one that people would want to be associated with, you know? Um, so I just love how you use that term. And I think it's, again, a very relatable feeling. So I'm wondering what are some of the like unremarkable feelings that you feel like you've had that were triggers at first, but have just become kind of part of this navigating survivorship. Sure. Um, Yeah. I mean, like you said, the sense of like, especially in this society and culture where like at a very young age, you want to be remarkable. It's yeah. how are you going to be special and how are you going to set yourself out apart from the others? So, um, so yeah, then the first time I ever had a doctor like reading through my scans and be like, yeah, and there's a spot that's lighting up over here. And I mean, it was all over, you know, when I was first diagnosed and I'm like, but you know, your lungs are unremarkable. And I just like did a double take and I looked <laughs> at my mom and she's like, what? Like, I feel special though. Like, right. I, don't, I shouldn't be here. And so like, definitely like the first time hearing that was an ego hit. Uh, and mm-hmm. then, and then you learn, as you said, that, you know, you don't want to be remarkable for the most part in the medical, you know, world. So you know, adapting and understanding like terminologies like that and, and 
not taking offense to them when you're just like, oh, yeah, like, it's okay that you're not special in this instance. You don't want to be special in that instance. Um, but a lot of it, you know, with with those, you know, that that phrasing and terminology is like there's so much, especially when you're going through treatment, that feels so remarkable to you, but to, like, everyone else who's, you know, taking your vitals or answering your questions about your nausea, like, it's unremarkable because it's commonplace. And so, you know, the understanding of, you know, and coming to terms with like, this is so remarkable for me, but it's not for most people going through this or like, you know, the people that are actually in the day-to-day, you know, experiencing it through their patients or so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, like just kind of moving past past that you know sense and 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 trying trying to take comfort and knowing like this is my story too and and it's not it's not um and I'm kind of getting lost in the in the in the question so to speak yeah yeah I don't there's definitely like part of the the sense of and that's also another thing with my memory now is I just lose. Oh, me too. So much. <laughs> me too. <laughs> I feel you. Oh man. I just like start a sense. I'm like, I'll be like, I have no idea where I'm going with it. Um, I'm like, and it's truly like since chemo, like it's yeah. Bad. Like I before could like pull up text receipts in my brain saying, "You said this to me on like July 7th, like five years ago," and now. Like, chemo brain is real it's, it's real it's real. <laughs> it it's like, so real I just asked you a question no you didn't <laughs> I tr- we just talked about this um so anyway to get back to to your initial question uh part of like the unremarkable thing for me though and I think what I most struggled with with that not necessarily any specific you know like you know pains or anything but when part of like going through through treatment though a lot of what you're going through from like a doctor's standpoint is fairly unremarkable, you know, so to speak, you know, you're not so unremarkable that you don't need an oncologist at that point. So, mm-hmm. you know, you go through having these people around you and this support network. And then, you know, what I really struggled with and I, and I, it's only honestly been the last, the last visit, which was a, few months ago where I've started being able to separate myself from kind of my past identity. But what, what I really struggled with was I would go into these follow-up appointments and, and would kind of, there would be this tug of war with the sense of being unremarkable or remarkable because it w- it was also kind of, it was the same thing in paralleling the tug of war of, of, patient versus survivor. And so I would go into these, these appointments and I felt, I felt awful for the longest time thinking this, but I would go in on honestly kind of wanting them to tell me that my scan had something on it because there was a part of me that was one. If I say I want it and they tell me that it's happening, they can't, it can't hurt me. Like it did the first time. Like I'm not caught off guard because I'm telling myself I want this. And then Two, there was a sense of, I only know how to be a patient at this point. Mm -hmm. And so if I felt so lost in that survivorship kind of transition that 
and lost and very lonely. The, like the loneliest I felt was going, was kind of that transition. And even still now there's bits where I'm just like, yeah, I don't know what puzzle piece I exactly fit into. Cause again, you go from having all these people in this team around you and everyone like, how's treatment? How are you doing? To then being like, oh, great. You're back, you know, again, quote unquote normal. Um, you know, you're great. And so no need to ch- touch base with you and see how you're doing. As I'm like crying, as I'm like driving down the road randomly, like in the middle of the day, um, right, right. for no reason I can figure. But um, so there was this, that push and pull of being like, okay, well, I only know how to be a patient and looking ahead, I've trained myself not to look ahead and I don't really know what that means. And I still part of me doesn't feel like I can plan for anything in the future. And it's also so, it's very daunting looking ahead. And so then I would, you know, that was another reason I told myself, you know, I want something to come up on my scan is because there was a sense of like, well, that, that was a touchstone that I understood and I could figure out. And so if they, if they gave me that, you know, diagnosis or that result, I had that comfort in knowing, okay, I can figure this out. Like we can go through that and we can, I, I know the steps to get to where we need to go. And so there was that sense of like, okay, I want to be remarkable. But then when a couple of times there were things that popped up on my scan that we had to go in to do biopsies for, and it was ended up being scar tissue that was absorbing, you know, the, the radioactive isotopes that come in the scary little syringe, but um, you know, so it ended up being nothing. But when my doctor told me that news, I, you know, hung up the phone and just started crying. Cause again, going back, I was like, I don't want to go back through what I went through. And so then there was that sense of like, I don't want to be, I want to be unremarkable. I don't want to be remarkable. I can't go back. And so for me, that word is very much a tug of war within myself and kind of this duality of like, who am I? And what, what, what do I want to do? You know, what do I want to do moving forward? And I don't want to stay sick, even though I understand that more because I've had to for the past, you know, when I was going through it, like the, for a year straight, that's what I became. And now being like, okay, well, the the future is daunting and I don't know what it is, but again, it's been only like the past, past year. And I think it's also because I took a break from work. I dove back into work pretty quickly after my, my, as soon as my doctor said, and this was like a few months after transplant, they said like, technically you can go to work. I wouldn't suggest it, but you can. I was like, okay, great. I can go to work. So (laughs) because that's all I knew because that was the, that was the early version of me was work was everything. So I dove back into it. And so then I kind of said, you know what, something's not working here. And I, I, my past does not fit me. So let's hit a bit pause and reflect. And again, I was fortunate enough to be able to do that and to be able to support myself through doing that. But that's what kind of allowed me to then start separating myself from being attached to this patient part of me and feeling like she's still there. Mm-hmm. She's, you've been through a lot with her, but there's this next part of you and like, let's move on and kind of figure that out. Totally. I feel like a lot of what you were just talking about with remarkable, unremarkable reminded me a lot of this idea of control. You know, we as cancer patients are completely out of control. We have no control over what is happening to us, what we're going through. And so, but it was almost like a comfort 
when you're in treatment because there's a plan and you're following the plan and you're seeing your doctors and they're telling you what you do and you're you're checking things off a list almost it's very much my personality so I like thrived thrive maybe is not the right word but like but still no yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I was like okay I put my head down and this is what we're doing and we're just checking each treatment off as we go but then when you transition into that survivorship, it's this lack of control. And something you said struck me like when you see your doctors now, for me, it's almost like my doctor's trying to small talk with me. And I'm like, I don't want to small talk. Like you're great. And I admire you as a person, but like, I am here because I had cancer and I want you to make me feel better about yeah. like what I'm going through. Yep. And this like idea of just kind of chatting and small talk and everything makes it feel um, unremarkable, I guess, is what, what yeah. to kind of relate it back to what you were saying. So, yeah, I don't know. I Everything you're saying is totally just like hitting me, hitting me right yeah. here because I totally relate to it. Now, what, um, if you don't mind me asking what cancer did you have? Yeah. So I had triple negative breast cancer. I was diagnosed right before you had your transplant actually in January of 2019. Okay. So my treatment went until like end of October, but with triple negative, there aren't kind of, um, unlike other breast cancers that are like hormone, um, driven, there aren't any like drugs or anything for you to be on after. So I'm totally relating to where like treatment ended and that was it. They were like, see you in three months. Like, that's it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it just, I think that whole idea of that transition is just really tricky. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, my goodness. You talked about, um, I just feel like we've, we've touched upon it a bunch, kind of the frustration about being a survivor, but also the fact that, gosh, we're so lucky. And you put that so eloquently in your article, Has your perspective about anything in life kind of shifted after going through this so young? And if so, could you share a little bit about like what, what your perspective has shifted regarding? Um, Absolutely. I mean, I, I was like thinking about this. I was like, I feel like I'm probably like 60% of the person I was before I got sick. Like, it totally kind of rocked and altered what I deemed as important and kind of what I wanted to put my energy in, um, energy into. And, you know, the, the sense of a ticking clock has definitely, like, I'm so aware of it now. Whereas before I was like, whatever I need to do for work, like I'm putting in the time and I'm climbing these ladders. And, and once I got you know, sick and went through treatment again, it wasn't until I, I kind of dove back into work that then I realized, cause I'm very much, you know, I'm, I learned best by doing. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I, once I got in to work again, there was this sense of like, Oh no, maybe, maybe this isn't what we want to do. Um, and so again, because career was so much at the forefront of my mind before I got sick, like, that has been the biggest shift and why I talk about it a lot is because that, I mean, that was a lot of my identity before, um, which may speak to what I was like before. Um, but like, it was very much that and very type A and everything was like to a T super perfectionist. Um, 
And so, you know, there's a lot to unpack with me and some other, uh, <laughs> but so, you know, cancer really much puts a mirror up to you and it's just like, why don't you take a look? Because it's you against the world for a while. Like it's you or the totally one doctors, but like it's you getting through it. And so you're kind of forced to like, just be with yourself. And so for the longest time, a lot of what I operated on was, what do other people think of this? Will this be cool for other people? You know, is this something that, you know, other people think is interesting. I mean, I think it's interesting, but also other people question mark. So once I learned and was forced to listen to myself from a very like survival, you know, primal, just what is wrong? What do we need? Are you going to get sick? Do you need, you know, kind of relearning how to listen to my body in that sense has now shifted and kind of evolved and expanded into my mind and just listening to me on you know, and, and learning to trust what I want to do and what, what brings me joy. And I'm still learning that and figuring that out. Cause it's definitely not something, I mean, again, I operated one way for, you know, 25, you know, even up through treatment, like operated pretty much the same way. So it hasn't been until the last year of me, like really hitting pause to say, okay, no, what, what do we want to do? And you know, with that, it's, I'm calmer about certain things. I don't get as worked up about things. You know, I was always very much like, I need to work out. I need to eat right. I need to do this. And, you know, I had like ruffles for breakfast this morning. I'm not saying you should do it all the time, but I was like, eh, some chips don't sound bad. So it's like, you know, it's, it's all moderation, but it's definitely like learning to ease up on myself and to, to just, you know, appreciate a lot more. Again, like immortality was, taken from me but in its place I was given humility and Mm. so that's been the biggest thing that again I'm not one to be like you know everything happens for a reason some people love it for me I'm just like okay please do not say that to me one more time like the number of times someone said that to me I'm just like I was giving cancer because something is wrong with my cells and my immune system got confused all right that is basically what happened to me so you know (laughs) I have tried to then find peace with what happened and, and, a, and an appreciation for kind of who I've become because of it but I'm not like this was again I'm not a fan of saying the journey I it's not a trip I chose to take this was something that was handed to me so you know for some people who love that great for me I'm like please don't tell me it's a journey please don't say this happens for a reason I got sick I had to go through some really crappy stuff and this is kind of what I'm making out of it so <laughs> That was so well put, Aubrey, like so well put. And I think something else that doesn't get discussed enough about survivorship and you touched upon this idea is I think there's some truth to the fact that once we are deemed, you know, in survivorship or in remission or however you want to say it, there's a time where, at least for me, I still wasn't ready to make plans for the future because it was still so terrifying and unknown for me. Mm -hmm. And then I think you get to a point where you're comfortable enough to say, okay, maybe I am going to be okay. And that's kind of when you start to really reflect and, and figure out kind of what you're going to do with your life. Um, And that kind of sounds similar to, oh yeah to yeah your situation your experience absolutely I totally relate to like I'm still not comfortable making plans like because there's Mm -hmm. always a sense of like 
okay, well, I don't want to put all my eggs in that basket because what if it comes back? And then Mm -hmm. I, you know, started down this road and now I got to, you know, pull back. So absolutely. Yeah, totally. Uh, I'd love to kind of transition a little bit and talk more about your writing process. Um, I think that it's very clear you're a beautiful writer. I think it's clear that this is not your first kind of rodeo with writing. Um, And you mentioned that for you in your cancer center, like waiting for appointments was kind of started to become a time where you would really kind of dig deep and, and be able to kind of put some words down on paper, so to speak. Um, so I'm just wondering, could you share your process, your writing process and kind of how it makes you feel when you write about what you've been through? Yeah. Um, so I like in high school, I really liked writing. Um, but I never really did anything creatively. Like it would be like speeches for like student council stuff. Um, cause then I got to climb that letter. So I, you know, it wasn't, I've always liked putting words together, but it wasn't something, you know, once I left high school, I kind of fell away from that. Um, and so honestly, you know, kind of going back also to, to kind of somewhat what I was touching about before is, you know, learning to listen to myself. It was also learning, you know, going through treatment and then kind of leaning and then survivorship and leaning into writing. That was me learning to use my voice again that Mm -hmm. I stifled when I was listening to what everyone else might want me to do or what are other people going to think. And so it was my way of kind of saying, well, you know, screw this. I, you know, I, I have stuff to say and I haven't said it before. And this is, this is my way of saying it. And so, um, it's been very therapeutic for me. It's kind of been, you know, again, I've been privileged to be able to have a therapist who I had she knew me before I got sick. So she saw me before, during, and after, um, which is again, super privileged place to be. But, um, I, you know, writing allows me to go even deeper than that because it's just me and the paper. Um, and so typically for like my processes, I'll usually have an idea, like a theme, that I, you know, like being told that I'm going to be infertile, you know, and is a piece I've kind of written about. And, you know, I'll have that or I'll have like an image that sticks in my mind. And so for this specific piece, it was kind of the start of like the rocking of the car, like going to the, to the, my checkup kind of thing. And so there I just kind of see where it takes me and I just kind of try to write as unfiltered as possible. And then I'll go back through and kind of edit and until it's what I want it to be. Um, and then typically, so before I really kind of started writing because I started a web, you know, a website, which was truly my way of kind of forcing myself into a corner to say, if you're going to tell people you have a website, now you got to actually write. And yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was my way of like, um, of, of forcing myself to flex that, the, my vocal cords in a way, you know, and, and to, start putting out thoughts I had about kind of my experience and processing my experience. And so, you know, that because of that, because it was going on a, you know, my own kind of platform, I did share, I would share my pieces with my oldest sister, um, who's also an English major. So um, I'll usually share it with her. And then depending like one other person, just like, does this make sense? Depending on how kind of out there I'm getting with 
you know, how I'm writing the piece. Um, you know, especially when I did about, you know, an eating disorder I had. So it's, you know, depending, I was like, I want to make sure that this is coming across. And also this isn't in anything that's like offensive or like, I want to make sure that my points are clear kind of thing. Cause they're clear in my head, but maybe not to others. So that's why I typically would share things before I start uploading. But, um, but yeah, otherwise it's just, I'll just have an idea and just kind of write and it's my, like, truly it's kind of my Zen space of just like, I put headphones on and put either like super sad music on if I'm trying to be super sad or super upbeat if I want to be a little more funny. And um, yeah, like the interesting thing though is as when I started writing and also kind of why I started chewing on lemons, which is the, the website. Yes, um, please plug it. I was going <laughs> to ask you to share what it is. People are going to want to um, know. <laughs> so yeah, so it's called chewing on lemons. Um, and when I started that, the reason I started it was because I would you know, I was like, well, there's not really any more comedic, lighthearted, you know, takes on going through cancer treatment. Um, and I was like, and me being me, I love comedy. And, and so I was like, yeah, you know, great. And then there's also that part of me that's just like, also though, it's kind of a very niche thing that you kind of have to be in the mood for when you're going through it. Cause again, you're like, I'm remarkable. This is painful. Why are you making light of this kind of thing? So I started writing and, you know, the thought was going to be a lot of these are going to be more kind of lighthearted, but still very much in touch with me, who can be a very existential, like, brooding person since cancer treatment. So I started it that way, but I quickly learned and realized with myself that when I was writing, it very much veered into this more, again, deeper, like, more guttural um, not the lighthearted comedic things that I thought like voice I was going to have. It became very much just like, no, this is, this is the crap I went through and, and trying to paint that in, in a way that like got that emotion across. So it became much more serious, um, when I was writing. So, um, so yeah, like that whole process is it like me just exercising that had quickly kind of started finding my voice and what does that sound like and I'll still have some comedic pieces about like the HDTD being like in every hospital ever um but otherwise it's like very much more kind of serious stuff but another thing was is so I that website it's called chewing on lemons because um uh my sister actually gave me the thought of the name because when I would go in to get my port flushed before I had this amazing nurse tell me and hint and, and give me the inside scoop on like the saline that comes in the bottles, not the pre-filled vials, before she imparted that wisdom on me, I would get so nauseous from the flushes because I could taste it. Mm-hmm. And what I was tasting, I learned to find out was like, essentially, it's the plastic, I guess, because they're like, it's not in the glass tubes. It's truly one of the ones that have just been hanging out. So I when I would go in though, I would do all sorts of stuff to try to mask the flavor. And so I've burned through peppermint. I've burned through Werther's. I've burned through so many things that just got like wrecked because I then associated it with the oh, port flush. Totally. Jolly ranchers were my yes. thing. <laughs> <laughs> Can you have them now? Or are you like, I cannot, I can't even like when I see them, it's, it's kind of like what you were talking about in the beginning. There are those weird random little triggers that just, yeah. Yeah. They send you like right back and you're just like, yep. no, I'm good. 
mm-hmm. unless you want me hugging the toilet again i'm good yeah um, i love also side note i love how eloquently you say hugging the toilet it's such a funny <laughs> way to put it i love that sorry we just got very uh, very close uh, yeah. <laughs> um but yeah so what i found though was i would chew on lemons like i would take my mom would cut up lemons and i'd take my bag and I would go and I'd just bite the lemon and that never bothered me because I guess maybe it just it was so citrusy that like mm. that was all I tasted. So I didn't have this weird like caramel saline infusion thing that was going on. So, um, yeah, so that's where I got that that idea, because then, you know, when life hands you lemons, um, I'm not saying make lemonade, but I just said <laughs> I just said, you know, OK, well, this is me then chewing on the lemons that I've been handed and so the website very much started and a lot of what's on there is like specific to cancer in my experience but it was also it's since become just like the many different lemons that life hands us and so it's been about you know family members passing away and again my eating disorder you know in high school and and kind of all these other things that very much make me who I am. And this was also another thing is going back to this identity of like patient and survivor is I started that, but I was like, if this is going to be my writing, I don't want that to be my sole identity because then I'm going to cling, I think harder to this patient and being like, that's all that that's given me. And so I want to cling to that. And so then branching out and actually like using it to process like other stuff and just like, family bs that goes on and things like that where it's like my therapy um and that's kind of what that's become um so yeah oh man thank <laughs> you for sharing all of that and i'm definitely going to put chewing on lemons which is your website i'm going to put it in the show notes so people can check it out <laughs> um i did already check it out and it's pretty fantastic so um i'm glad you can find it because sometimes when you google like if you don't unless you google like the chewing on it comes up like lemons for recipes and I'm oh no like, okay, I need to like get bumped up in the <laughs> yeah oh man gosh I love I love that you shared the backstory of why it's called that though because without knowing the fact that you actually physically chewed on lemons um during your your infusions uh I just assumed that it was kind of the when life gives you lemons which it is a little bit of both but I love yeah, that I love that it's twofold yeah um love but actually the nurse who like told me about the other saline was she loved lemons, oddly enough. It was like this weird sense of like what I was using to cope. She then took away why I needed to cope with it because she was like, no, you can just ask for the bottled saline and, and you won't taste it. And sure enough, like I didn't taste it at all. They always like grumbled. The other nurses grumbled and they <laughs> said, could I please have the non-filled ones? But it was a life changer, like a lifesaver. <laughs> oh, wow. All right. Hot tip. Hot tip for anyone listening who's still getting infusions. That is good information. Um, I am wondering, do you have any advice because we may have people listening who maybe either haven't tried writing about what they've been through. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, do you have advice for them on where to start or kind of anything that could help them see that there really is some power behind kind of putting your thoughts down? Sure. Um, I mean, writing is kind of like running again, something I did a lot more before I got sick and I'm like just trying to get back into it. But for me, like writing is like running and that it's like the cheapest exercise to get into because uh, you truly just need a writing utensil and some paper or even like if, if you have a phone right in a, a smartphone, you can write in notes and things like that. So 
it's so the barrier to entry is like super low, um, which is great, but also much like running, it's not necessarily for everyone. Um, so, you know, for anyone who's curious about it, you know, just, you know, starting by like journaling is super helpful. Cause that's honestly kind of how I started um, was I never journaled before. And then once I started, once I got my diagnosis, I, um, uh, my therapist actually suggested, you know, maybe trying to journal through it. And so, which I'm so glad I did, because I kind of have that now to kind of read back on and reflect on, but I've since carried that process through. And so some of the stuff like I, that I then kind of take and then put into larger like pieces to put on the website or beyond are like from my journals, like different ideas. And so even just that of like, this is what I did today, or this is how I'm feeling. And then you get like just the sheer act of putting your thoughts to paper and then allowing that to then morph however it morphs. If it does into, you know, poetry, if you end up doodling different, like, you know, things like that, then it's, it's really just, you don't, you don't need an excuse to write or, or if you feel like you don't have a story to tell one, you don't necessarily need a story to tell. But again, if part of your barrier to entry is like, well, I don't feel like I have anything to say, or I don't have a story clearly that's the farthest thing from the truth because we all have a story um because so, everyone is absolutely different and has their own experiences so you know it's one of those things you just kind of have to dive into and see if it sticks and if it doesn't and you're like I'm more I prefer to sing into my phone then great then that's kind of your outlet too and you don't necessarily need an outlet but it's for me it's been super helpful just because also because of chemo I found that I don't always do the best speaking to someone that I haven't like met before or try to explain things like I get very jumbled in my head a lot um and I lose my train of thought a lot typically so you know for me writing has helped me with that because I'm able to like look at it and tweak it and say like no clearly this is what I want to say versus again I change words around and then I can't really think as quickly or you know so it's it's just an outlet that's like super helpful for me um but as far as like the process it's again just figuring out whatever sticks for you yeah I love that that's great advice you know I I there really is no right or wrong way to do it and maybe starting small if you feel like you want to even just start by writing down you know one thing a day or um yeah, there's no right or wrong way to do it. And I think that's that's kind of the bottom line. Um, Aubrey, I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me. I think that everything you shared was just so um, relatable and your article is amazing. And I hope that everyone who's listening enjoyed hearing a little bit more about you and your story. Um, and I'm wondering if you could share what the best way for the members of our herd who are listening to kind of connect with you? Would it be your website or is there? Yeah. Some... That's okay. Probably Great. the best way. Um, and that's just chewing on lemons.com. Uh, awesome. Um, so there's that. And then there's also like, I do have an Instagram for that. Um, so it's just at chewing on lemons. So that's probably the best way. Um, as far as like through that too, if I do post and stuff, like you can always just like subscribe to it. Um, um, through the website, but 
but yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, again, I'll make sure to put all of that in the show notes. And I also am going to chat with you after, because I'd also, you mentioned, you know, people who donate, um, you know, swab for stem cells, that that is super, super helpful. And I want to put, if there's a website or a um, organization or something that a way to sign up to do that, I'd love to also put that in the show notes for people. Absolutely. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Thank you, Aubrey. Thanks for your time and for being vulnerable. And it was really, really nice talking with you today. Thank you so much. It was uh, amazing for me. This is like a huge kind of also moment for like my cancer, you know, experience and kind of where I'm at now. So. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Are you a patient or caregiver with something to say? Make your voice heard by participating in paid surveys, interviews, and online communities. Start talking to the right people. It's free. Rare Patient Voice accepts rare and non-rare diagnoses. In celebration of their 10th anniversary, their studies now pay at a rate of $120 an hour. Sign up today at rarepatientvoice.com slash E&T. That's rarepatientvoice.com slash E-A-N-D-T. Thanks for listening. We hope you feel a little less alone in what you're going through. Be sure to tune in next time. But until then, visit www.elephantsandtea.com for more relatable content.